Well, this week, we are going to be looking at Psalm 73. So if you have a Bible, uh, please go ahead and turn to Psalm 73. It should be right about smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Um, If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue Bible in the seat in front of you. You are more than welcome to use that. if you don't own a Bible, you can take that blue Bible, you can take it home. That, that is our gift to you. Uh, we would love you to have a Bible that you can read, that you can study, that you can learn from each and every week. For the last month, we've been going through the Psalms. And the Psalms are ancient Israel's, essentially their, their song book. Uh, they would um, write these poems, which eventually would be sang in, uh, in the, 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 the congregations as they were coming and worshiping God. And they tell us of true struggles of the believer, those who have put their faith in God and put their faith in, 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 in Christ and, and how they would struggle with everyday life and, and, and this walk between, this is my life, but I believe in who God is and there seems to be a disconnect, so how do we walk through that? And so um, uh, we'll see this week um, a, a similar mentality in Psalm 73. So what I would like um, is we're going to read through the first half of Psalm 73. So if you would please go ahead and stand. We stand every week out of awe and reverence. We are reading the very words of God. um, And so we stand out of uh, respect for the scriptures. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are wicked Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we, we echo this psalmist And we say, truly God is good to his people, um, but Lord, there's something in our world that doesn't make it seem so. Lord, help us to worship you. Um, Help me to speak uh, your words. Holy Spirit, would you uh, enliven our hearts that uh, your word would fall on uh, good soil, that it would grow into faithfulness to you. Lord, be with us this morning. Teach us of what you would want us to learn Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So when I was in middle school and high school, uh, there was this one show that me and my brother loved to watch on MTV. It was Cribs. And Cribs, what they would do, if, if you haven't seen the show Cribs, what they would do is they would go into the, the movie stars. They would go into the sports athletes, the, the famous people, the celebrities, and they would go into their houses. And usually it was Los Angeles or around Los Angeles. Um, and they would show us how these wealthy celebrities lived. We got to see uh, the Cribs of movie stars, musicians, and sports athletes. And if the outside of the house was amazing, the inside was even better. We got to see people such as Mariah Carey, Tony Hawk, Usher, Snoop Dogg, basketball players such as Shaq or Jason Kidd, musicians such as Wayne Newton or Sammy Hagar or Lil Jon. They would show us how many cars they had in the garage. They would show us their massive pools, which always had an incredible view of it. Massive bedrooms and massive bathrooms. And then they always showed us what was inside the refrigerator, which I always thought was a little weird, but they would show us, okay, what, what did these stars eat? What was in their refrigerator? And of course, it was fully loaded with all the good sodas and snacks and, and, and drinks and, and, and everything you would ever want or need. I remember thinking back in middle school and in high school, why would you ever leave a house like that? I would just stay there forever. That's the goal. It seemed as if their lives were perfect. That is an incredible house. I would love to live there. That's the good life. And I think what the show Cribs tries to demonstrate is something that humanity is gen in general is always trying to achieve. The good life. Take a moment and think about what would be the good life to you. Maybe it's not giant houses overlooking Los Angeles, but what conditions would there need to be in your life where you were to say, I have finally arrived at the good life? Maybe it's sitting, relaxing on your front porch, maybe an evening walk with your spouse, maybe it's the goal off in the distance that you want to reach, the job that you want, the new house that you are working toward, once you get done with school, or you get out of your parents' house, maybe the good life is coming to you after your kids leave the house. <laughs> that was my kid, by the way. Maybe it's when you finally retire. That's when the good life will start. A life of ease, a life of peace. What idea of the good life are you striving after? See, our psalmist this morning, a man by the name of Asaph, has an idea of what the good life is. But there's a problem. He doesn't have it. And more than the fact that he doesn't have it, other people have it. 
and they have the life that he wants. What we're going to see this morning, that through this psalm, there are three things. First, we're going to see the, the, the problem of envy, the problem of envy, and then the folly of envy, and then finally, the, the, the solution to envy. See, what happens is Asaph finds himself full of envy. Uh, verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, envy, envy is the, the, the feeling of being discontented or resentful or even angry at someone else's situation. In Asaph's case, he is envious of the good life that other people seem to have. So let's start by looking at the problem of envy. He starts by saying, truly God is good to Israel. In essence, this is a cry to say, yes, I know that God is good to Israel, but something doesn't seem to be the case. In my world, it, it doesn't look like God is good to Israel. He nearly stumbled, he nearly sinned, as he saw that those who are wicked are prosperous in living the good life. As we read earlier, these rich people, they have no pain until death. They are well fed. They are never hungry. They are never in trouble. He says that they are always at ease. They always increase their riches. And is this, is this not how we view the, the, the wealthy, the rich in our world? Man, those movie stars, they don't have any difficulty in life. They have their every need fulfilled. Do we not see the, the ultra-billionaires in this life as well, the Jeff Bezos and the, the Elon Musks and, and, and the bankers? Uh, they, they seem to have unfathomable amounts of money. They all have their needs fulfilled. Anything they want, they can have. Those who have such massive bank accounts that they will no longer have to work a day in their life. Now, maybe that's not the life that you want. But I know all of us struggle with envy and a resentful heart on some level. Where we look to someone else's life and say, they have the life that I want. And so we often feel discontent with our own lives. My kid acts this way. I want them to act this way. My house has this problem that I hate. My car won't start this morning. The tool broke when I was trying to fix something. We all have those things that cause us to be unhappy with the way that our lives are. What causes your discontentment. And I would say, uh, uh, apart, from, apart from sex, probably envy and discontentment is the largest issue plaguing our country. If commercials don't have sex appeal, they have envy appeal. Your life will be better if you have this one item. Look at this family. They have it. Look how happy they look. 
you should get it. Our culture is fueled by discontentment. My life is not the way that I want it to be, so I need to go out and try and make it so. Capitalism thrives on discontented hearts. And social media throws gasoline onto that fire that's already burning and tells us all the perfect lives that everyone else seems to be living. And it leaves us resentful. And just a a, a quick note about the perspective here that I think will be helpful for us to think through with this psalm. See, we tend, like Asaph, to, to look up at those richer than ourselves, that they have the good life in their giant mountains, in their giant mountain houses. They don't own mountains. But let's just take a moment for a perspective change. The average salary in the United States is $56,420. Do you make more than that? Let's expand that a little bit more. The average household income of everyone on the entire earth is $12,235. The average household income of everyone in the entire earth is $12,000. If you make over $100,000, you are in the top 10% of all wealth of everyone on this planet. And maybe we need to see ourselves, not as ASAF, but as the prosperous he talks about. Now, I'm not saying wealth is bad, and I'm certainly not saying you attained it through wicked means, but do we place too much hope and comfort in our wealth and what we have and not enough in God? Do we place our hope in our bank accounts where we functionally live like these prosperous, we functionally live like every day that our money will take care of us better than what God will do? Envy comes to us in our hearts, and we say to ourselves, man, if I had different circumstances, if I had the circumstance like theirs, life would be great. If I had the material wealth of these people, all would be right in the world. And what makes the matter worse for Asaph is not merely that these people are rich, the fact that they are arrogant and proud as well. He says their hearts overflow with sins. They threaten oppression for those who don't agree with them. They speak evil of those around them. Violence is all around them. They speak evil of God and they uh, they challenge his knowledge and wisdom. They are full of wickedness, yet they continue to be wealthy. They continue to live the good life. They are sinful jerks, but they are still living the best life we can dream of. And I think sometimes we feel as long as the rich are good people, we're okay with them having money. But as soon as they are mean or arrogant or violent people, no, that's not right. That shouldn't be the case. They don't deserve the good life. There are some wealthy people in our world doing some very wicked things, but yet they continue to live the good life. The psalmist sees this situation where the wicked, sinful people prosper, and he is almost overcome with envy. 
He wants the life that these people have, and he is resentful. And he says, if I were in their shoes, I would do better. In verse 13, he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands of innocence. Basically, what he's saying there is, what's the point? Why am I trying to live an upright life? Why am I trying to live an honorable life when all these people who don't care about God, who, who are arrogant and proud and violent, they're living the good life? So what's the point? Maybe I shouldn't follow God because I could get the good life without him. He doesn't seem to care how I get riches and prosper. So what's the point? Why does it, why does it matter? Asaph is struggling with this. God, the life you have given me is not good enough. I want it to be like that one. My job isn't the way I wanted it to be. My spouse isn't the person that I want. I live where it is gloomy and cloudy all the time, and I just want it to be sunnier. Oh, that, I feel like that hit a nerve a little bit. Okay, all right. I just want my kids to act a different way. God, the life you have given me is not the one that I want. Other people have the life that I want, and I am tempted to live like them in order to get it. Asaph, in, in verse 15, is prepared to leave everything behind and pursue the good life as these prosperous people have it. But before he throws everything away, he does something that we would all be wise to follow when we are tempted. He goes into the house of God. He doesn't understand why the wicked are living the good life. He was struggling, so he goes to God. His very heart is pulling him away, and the world looks so different than what he understands. But he doesn't go watch the news he doesn't go listen to a podcast. He doesn't trust the wisdom of this world to tell him what is right and what is wrong. No, he goes to the sanctuary of God. This might mean actually going up to the temple, but it could also mean uh, that he took time and, and, and went into the presence of God. And so he read the scriptures, he prayed, and he looked at the truth of who God is to help him understand the reality of the world around him. He goes to God, and in verse 16, his eyes are opened, and he sees the folly of envy that he was feeling. Let's pick it up in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them, talking about the rich, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant towards you. I was like a beast towards you. By going to God he sees the folly of envy. The folly of envy is that trusting in riches and desiring the good life apart from God is like a house built on sand. Eventually, it all comes crashing down. 
prosperous sinners are not prosperous forever. The good life does not last. God sees those who are rich and living sinful lives, those who are arrogant and proud and oppress others. He knows eventually they will lose everything. They will fall to ruin. They will be destroyed in a moment. They will be swept away like a mist. God will get the last word. The wealth and prosperity, the good life of the wicked will not last. Either they will fall to ruin in this life, they will lose everything, and they will be despised and disregarded, or they will die. And no matter how much money you have in the bank, you cannot, it will not save you from, de- it will not save you from death. You cannot take it with you. The pharaohs of Egypt used to fill their tombs with all sorts of treasures, believing that it would go with them to the afterlife. But they died, and their wealth stayed here, and their wealth in this life has profited them nothing. The Apostle Paul says this in the, in, in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who desire to be rich much like Asaph and like so many of us, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The desire for more, for more money, and a better life, the overwhelming desire for that next raise, that next job, that next profit, that desire to have the good life like everyone else will drive you to ruin. It will plunge you to destruction. And according to Paul, the desire to be like the wealthy in this world who have no pains and and no struggles will drive you away from your faith and destroy you. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, the folly of envy is that we are believing ultimate satisfaction will come through something that cannot provide ultimate satisfaction. The folly of envy is that uh, if you were to have the other things that people have, it would lead you away from God. You would not become a better Christian by having those things. According to Paul and what we see in Psalm 73, it, it would actually make you a worse Christian. It's like drinking strychnine, believing that your headache will go away. The folly of envy is that you want something that will kill you. Your envy is driving you to death. See, Psalm 73 is that not only the desire of having more going to destroy you, but also if you were actually to get it, it would lead you to destruction. Okay, that's it. Don't envy. Don't want what other people have. You guys got this, right? All right. Have a good week. (laughs) Thankfully, Asaph doesn't leave us there. 
Not only does Psalm 73 show us the destruction of envy, uh, of the envious, uh, of those who he's envious of, but by his going to God and discerning their end, we see the solution to envy. Let's look at verse, verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The solution to envy is contentment in God. Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs from the 1600s wrote a fantastic book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And I would say if you struggle in this area, if you struggle with envy and contentment, I highly recommend it, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in it, he defines contentment as Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal at every condition. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. See, the scriptures constantly call us to be content in our circumstances. 1 Timothy chapter 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 2 Corinthians 12, for the sake of Christ then, this is Paul speaking, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Are we able to say along with Paul, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions? Luke chapter 3, a couple of soldiers come and ask Jesus, and we, what, what, what shall we do? And I know there's a couple of soldiers in this room, and so here's your answer. This is what Jesus says. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Contentment means that no matter what our outside circumstances are, we are happy in God. If we are rich, it's from God's hand. If we are poor, it's from God's hand. If we are healthy or sick, honored or mistreated, comfortable or in pain, hot or cold, we have everything we need or we don't, we are happy in God. If we have God, we have enough. 
The truth of contentment is that contentment will not come from stuff out there. It will not come from a change of circumstances or when a problem is fixed. Contentment comes from the knowledge that God has me exactly where I need to be. We often think that if this one thing were different, then I would be a better Christian. I'd be more patient with those around me. I'd be more caring. Christian, God has you in this moment exactly where you should be. The very circumstances in my life uh, have been given by God. I don't need anything else. God has given me everything I need for this moment right now. Last week, Chris preached on Psalm 73. He's And he says that uh, our God is a good shepherd. The Lord cares for us. He provides for us. He protects us. He gives us what we need. And last week, Chris said something that stuck with me. He said, uh, uh, because we have a good shepherd, we can decide by faith not to desire more than the Lord has given me. See, Psalm 23 and Psalm 73 are intricately connected. Because our level of contentment with our life is directly matched by our belief that God is a good shepherd. If you are discontent with your life now, you have a worship problem. If you are discontent with your life now, you are saying in your heart that you don't believe that God is a good shepherd. However, if we believe that God is a good shepherd whether we are lying down in green pastures or we are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we will be content because we know our God is near and He cares for us and He is all that we need. I mean, look at, look at Moses and the Israelites. He sa- God saves the Israelites out of Egypt. He parts the Red Sea. And then they go into the desert and the Israelites complain. They say, have you brought us out in this desert to kill us? They are hungry and they complain. They are thirsty, they complain. God says that they complain because they, not because they have rejected Moses, but because they have rejected God. Your discontent, discontented heart may show that you don't actually believe God's word to be trustworthy. Contentment comes from not, not from outside circumstances uh, being right, but rather from our own hearts being satisfied. As a healthy man, when he, when he puts on a jacket, he may be cold at first, but then he warms up uh, with the contentment that comes from within our hearts, not from our circumstances. Oh, that we would be so countercultural in not trying to accumulate more things or change our circumstances to make us happy, but that we would be content with whatever circumstance we are in. And so with the remainder of our time, what I wanted to do was to break down the end of this psalm, the last few verses, as it teaches us how to fight for contentment. It teaches us how to fight envy First, we fight for contentment by knowing that God is with us in this fight. Verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. 
We are content because we are not alone. God often says in the scriptures, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you, and it is no different in contentment. Hebrews 13 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can be content because God will never leave us nor forsake us. We are free to be content in what we have because we know that what we have will never be taken away from us in God. We don't trust in riches because we can lose them, but we trust in God whom we can never lose. True contentment is found in that which can never be taken from us. Jesus speaks to this effect when he, he tells the parable of the man who he goes and he finds a treasure in a field. And he says that this man left and he with joy sold all that he had to go buy that field so he could have that treasure. And you know that that man, once he has found supreme treasure, would not be drawn away by something lesser. We disregard the temporary and cling to the eternal. So when you are struggling to be content in your current circumstances, turn your heart to Jesus and say to yourself, I have Jesus and he will never leave me. I have all that I need. The second way we fight for contentment is by knowing that this life is not our end. We know that better is coming. Verse 24 He says, afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? See, the truth is is that for the Christian, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, this is not your best life now. So you don't have to claw for your best life now because it's not. No matter how good you have it now, the life to come in the new heavens and the new earth will be infinitely better. This life is only a shell of what is to come. Jeremiah Burroughs says it this way, So let us not be troubled when we see that other men have great wealth, but we have not. Why? Because we are going to another country. You are, as it were, only lodging here for a night. If you were to live a hundred years in comparison to eternity, It is not so much as a night, and it is though we are traveling and have come to an end. This world is not our home. And so when we travel and we stay at a hotel, we know we are not where we are supposed to be. We are only staying here for a little time. So we are content with what God has given us now because we know infinitely better is coming. We can be patient in difficulty now because we know full joy is coming. Even though we do not have all that we want in this life, there is a day coming when we will have more than we ever dreamed of. Back in the 70s, Stanford University, um, they did a study. They did a study on 32 kids under the age of five. (coughs) Excuse me. And what they did is they uh, placed a, a... placed a kid in a room, and on a table they set a marshmallow, single marshmallow. And they did this study, and they told the kids, all right, I'm going to leave, 
and I'm going to come back in five minutes. If that marshmallow is still there and you have not eaten it, I will give you five marshmallows. And so they did this study on whether or not these kids would, would eat these marshmallows. Now, of course, some kids, they gobbled it up right away. Some kids fought the urge for a few minutes and then eventually gave in. Some fought hard through the five minutes, and, and they fought by, quote, making up songs, repeating themselves the reward, pounding their feet on the floor, frustratingly hitting their head. Or one girl simply rested her head on the table and took a nap, <laughs> which is not the worst way to fight temptation. Now, maybe you're not tempted by a marshmallow, but doesn't this echo what is in our hearts? Are we content with what we have been given because we are waiting for what is to come? Or do we try and snatch what is before us to make ourselves happy as quickly as we can? Philippians 3, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. We disregard the temporary and we cling to the eternal, the surpassing worth of Christ. We know that infinitely better is coming and we are content to wait with what we have now. The third way we fight for contentment is we find our strength in Christ. Let's look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The famous line from Philippians 4 that uh, we started to quote above, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We fight contentment by knowing that our strength for the fight comes from Christ. We do not rely on our own ability. We do not build our strength by what we do. We cannot earn more strength. We cannot achieve more strength. Although we can go to the gym and get physically strong, we become spiritually stronger through Jesus strengthening us. Our flesh and our heart will constantly want to envy and desire what we do not have, but Christ strengthens our hearts to find satisfaction in Him alone. And the fourth way we fight for contentment is trusting that the nearness of our God is our good. Verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. For me, it is good to be near God. Timberline, your, your contentment can be found. It's not going to be found in making your life perfect now, in having every physical thing you want or need Contentment is found by being near Jesus. 
Our hearts are naturally drawn to envy and wanting more and more and more and more stuff. But let us go to the Scriptures and let us learn of God. Instead of fighting tooth and nail to climb the corporate ladder and make more money and have more influence, let us be satisfied with the riches of the nearness of God. Instead of constantly complaining of the problems in our lives, let us be satisfied by the nearness of the Holy Spirit living within us. Instead of comparing ourselves to others, let us empty ourselves and serve them. Let us find joy where it is actually to be found. Instead of finding the good life out there, the nearness of our God is our good. We seek first the kingdom of God, and just like the birds they are taking, we are taking care of, and the flowers, they are made beautiful, we will have everything we need. Burroughs, Jeremiah Burroughs says this, and although it's long, I think it's worth a mention. See, Burroughs says, see, it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon of my sin. It is not necessary that I, should be, that I should have honor and be preferred over others, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed, and I should be glad if God would give them to me. A fine house, an income, advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever, but the other is absolutely necessary. No matter how poor I am, I may have what is absolutely necessary. So I encourage you, take the time to study your heart and find out where your discontentment lies. For Asaph, he was discontent because he saw the others prospering and living a trouble-free life. What is causing your discontentment? What is making you unhappy? The good life is one that is near Jesus. So let us seek after him, learn about him, trust in him, find our joy in him as the most necessary and important thing in our life. Treat him as the treasure above all else. No matter what is happening around us, let us learn to be content in Jesus because with him we will have everything we need. The nearness of God is the good life. So let us strive with the strength of Christ to be near God. Let's pray. God, you are good. And as Asaph says, truly God is good to Israel. And we proclaim and say, amen, truly God is good to us. Lord, you are what we need. There is with you surpassing worth, surpassing everything else in this world. Lord, help us 
because our hearts are so constantly drawn away to other things. Lord, let us see you as the treasure of the thing that we most need most deeply. Father, change us. Change us more into your image, more into your likeness, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we would love our neighbor as ourselves. God, would you have the glory today? Would you be our portion and our treasure forever? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.